glad to be here. And uh, before we get started, I just thought I would mention um, thank you. A thank you to those of you who sent me eight-word sermons this week. Uh, I'm actually really grateful. That wasn't what I expected uh, when I told you to write eight-word sermons. But I got a bunch of text messages, and I got to tell you, they're really good. Like, really good. They were funny. They were profound. They were convicting for me. Uh, and so I just wanted to encourage you, whether you sent them to me or not, if you wrote an eight-word sermon, they're really good. And just keep praying for an opportunity to use that in the life of somebody else. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, our sermons are online, and you can go listen. You can figure out what exactly I'm talking about from last week. Uh, but we've been in this series going through the book of Jonah uh, called In Spite of Myself, which is, a, if you've been paying attention to the story, a very good title for the series. Uh, there's, there's a lot that Jonah really needs to work on. Uh, that, that's just true. And we've kind of come to the end of the story that you know, probably. Uh, it's sort of a famous story, the story of Jonah. And it's leaked its way into cultural icons like Moby Dick and Pinocchio. It's sort of all over the place. But the version of the story, if you know it, uh, probably goes like this. A long time ago, there was a prophet named Jonah. And God came to him and gave him a very specific thing to do. And Jonah ran away from that on a boat. And God sent a storm to try and turn Jonah around. And Jonah refused and tried to drown. And God sent a whale or a fish to try and save Jonah. And it swallowed him. And he was in the belly of the whale for three days before he was willing to say he was wrong and sorry and thank you, God, for saving me. And then God had the whale vomit him up. And then Jonah had exactly the same mission. And he went and talked to the people he was supposed to talk to. He told them what he was supposed to say. They listened. And everyone lived happily ever after. And that is not how the story of Jonah ends in the Bible. Uh, there is no happily ever after. In fact, there's a whole chapter 4 uh, that you don't know about, apparently. Uh, because uh, that's just kind of the way that that works, actually. And I'm really excited to get into it. Uh, the part of the story of Jonah uh, that maybe you've never heard before, or if you have, uh, it's the part you know less uh, than the other part. So turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. Uh, that's where we're going to be reading today. And uh, actually, we're going to start with the last verse of chapter 3. So this is Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That guy is a piece of work, I'll tell you. <sighs> Jonah has a very small God. A very petty understanding of God's grace and mercy. Almost like if somebody had a 
a model of the solar system, no matter how good it is, no matter how accurate it is, it's not the actual solar system. Or to confuse this little thing with the actual magnificent, massive thing would be a huge mistake. Jonah seems to have that problem theologically. He's really good at talking about God. He really seems to understand who God is. And at the same time, really seems to misunderstand who God is. He sort of wants this shrunken, shriveled, controllable version of God. A smaller version of God. Eugene Peterson tells this story of being a kid in Montana. I grew up at five years old in rural Montana. And he said, my, my greatest aspiration, my biggest dream in this world was to ride on a tractor. And my son, who is three going on four, if you've ever talked to Matthew, he's probably mentioned that he loves construction vehicles. So I actually really understand this story. Eugene Peterson just loves it. Like whenever he would hear the sound of a tractor, he would just go following it and stand and watch the guy drive around the field all day. And one day he was at a particular farm, the farm of a guy named Leonard Storm, and he was watching the tractor turn, and he was standing just outside the fence because he knew he wasn't supposed to go beyond the fence because somebody else's land, and you get in trouble, and you could get, but you're not supposed to do it. So he was watching the tractor, just wishing he could drive around on it. And in the distance, Farmer Storm kind of turns one of the rows, and he sees this little kid figure by the fence, and he just sort of starts yelling and gesturing wildly. And Eugene couldn't hear what he was saying because of the wind. He sort of just got the gist, like, I, I shouldn't be here, I'm doing something wrong. He was sort of crushed and sad and didn't even know what he'd done wrong, and he went on home. And a couple of days later, they were at church, because it's a small community. And so he was doing everything he can to avoid Brother Storm. And of course, that's not going to work. And so this big, burly farmer comes up to him and says, Little Pete. I hated that he called me Little Pete. Mm. <laughs> Little Pete, why didn't you come and ride on the tractor with me the other day? I, I didn't know I could. I, would, I thought you wanted me to go away. Little Pete. Little Pete. I, how, what do you usually do when you want someone to come close to you? And he said, well, I held up my little five-year-old finger and sort of... <laughs> he said, that's piddling, Little Pete. Little Pete. That's piddling. That's small time. We do things big on the farm. I misunderstood the gesture. Jonah is misunderstanding something pretty crucial in the grace of God. It's like God is calling him small time, or at least that's what Jonah seems to be hearing. Well, really, God's sort of inviting him in to the kingdom, into this great, grand mercy of God. I take Jonah's sermon, for instance, which is incredibly successful. <laughs> I, He's converted 120,000 of the most evil people on the face of the planet in less than 24 hours with a sermon that's about eight words long in English, five words long in Hebrew. It's like converting Hitler and all of Berlin at the height of World War II. It's amazing what has happened. If a teacher were to send off her second grade class and every single one of them became the valedictorian at an Ivy League school and they all pointed back to their second grade teacher, 
That would be incredible. We would all know her name, and she would feel very proud of herself, right? If a lawyer were to manage to pull off some amazing landmark legislation before the Supreme Court, everyone would always know their name. They would do something incredible for justice in our country. Be thrilled. This guy has preached the sermon of his career, a sermon that would put him in history as the greatest prophet in the Hebrew system. And he couldn't be more depressed. He couldn't be more angry. He couldn't be more upset. He is sulking and pouting. In fact, he is sitting at the edge of the city. He has just gotten to turn to Yahweh, right? The, the city that has managed to bow down and turn to the God of Israel against all odds. And he's on this hill and he's just sort of glaring at them. Hoping that they'll just burn. We're waiting for God to... And it's not happening, right? Verse 5, he's just on this hill like in the sun, staring at the, like waiting for the moment when the fire of God, when God will realize his mistake for being merciful and gracious. Somehow Jonah has missed something crucial in who God is. He's got a very small version of God, and that makes him look very small. The thing that Jonah is happiest about in all of these verses is not the lives of all of these people. It's that there's this bush nearby. Jonah is actually the, the recipient of the grace of God in the very moment that he's so angry about the grace of God. He's sitting in the shade of it. it there's a real irony in this story. And it, it's intent, the storyteller is very good at both telling a joke and helping you to see just how crazy this kind of anger is. In verse 10, it says that, that God decided not to bring the disaster, the calamity on the people. And in verse 1, we hear that that's an absolute disaster for Jonah. There's a play on words in Hebrew. So what's good for them is terrible for him. Again, that makes him look very small, very petty. And that word petty in English is one that comes from a French word, petite. Now, again, to be really small, that's where we get it from. Now, there's, there's something really petty, really small about Jonah that their success just kills him on the inside and it makes him cry out to God and say I just I knew this was going to happen this is what I was telling you when I was home you didn't need me for this I didn't want to be a part of this I didn't want those people to be forgiven that's why I didn't come here in the first place that's why I've been running so hard I didn't want you to forgive them and you and I who hear this we go, I don't understand like enemies like that because I'm charming, right? I don't have any enemies. You don't understand enemies. Like, you're, you're much too nice, you people. Right? You don't understand hatred. I'm sure there's, like, if I said that there's somebody you hate, you'd be like, woof, it's way too strong. I'm much too enlightened a person to hate someone. I don't hate anybody. And it's okay, so, like, but there, maybe there's somebody you have a grudge against or has a grudge against you. And you're thinking, I don't know, man, the grudges, that just sounds, I'm not going to, I live in the present. Like, I don't live in the past. All right, fine. Um, maybe there's somebody you're angry at. But maybe anger's too strong. And maybe you're thinking, I'm too centered, I'm too mindful to really feel anger in that way. I just let stuff go. That's me. Um, okay, I'm, I'm just going to come to this point. There's somebody you like less than somebody else. I think we can all agree there's somebody you like least in the world. This is, by the way, part of the problem with moralism that there really would be a challenge for us to use some of those other words to just be honest about how we feel. Because somehow that would make us the bad person. Just the people you like less, the people you like the least in the world, I would imagine there's some ex-boyfriends in the bunch and some ex-girlfriends or a roommate who 
screwed you out of rent money at some point in time. Or a best friend who really, really gossiped about you and broke trust. Or a nemesis at work. Or someone in the neighborhood who rides their motorcycle at exactly five in the morning on Saturday. Or somebody who just really hurt you at some point in the past and actually really hurt you. Not in a small way, but in a brutal, crushing way. And again, maybe you don't want to use the word hate. But in other generations, they might have just been honest about how they felt about these people. Maybe you don't want to say it's a grudge. But in other times, people at least were willing to say, I, I hope that guy dies. Ugly and brutal as that sounds. I hate them. And for some of us in our time, it might be political parties. You might be thinking of Trump voters or people who wouldn't ever wear a, a Make America Great hat. You might be thinking of illegal immigrants or people who would be kind to illegal immigrants. I don't know. But think of those people and how you feel about those people. Now imagine that they were about to get exactly what they deserved. No more, no less. But karma was coming. Right? Imagine they were about to get exactly what was coming to them. The thing that deep down we're all like, yeah, like if only that would happen to this person. If only that would happen. Imagine that that was about to happen and God used you to save them from it. And God used you not just to save them, but to bless them. I think we'd feel sick inside. I think it would really mess us up for a little while. I think we'd be outraged that God would dare you. Maybe God can do whatever he wants to them. I just don't want anything to do with them. Jonah has been used to save his worst enemies from what they absolutely deserve. That's why he's so upset. And you might be a little uncomfortable with all this, and you might be wondering, what do I do with people like this and with emotions like this? And the answer is, do exactly what Jonah does. Pray. Jonah, for everything he gets wrong about God, is often surprisingly good about talking to God. Much like the Pharisees in the New Testament don't ever do what they do, but man, they really can preach a good sermon. Those guys seem to really know what they're talking about. Jonah knows that when you come to God with really ugly, inappropriate emotions, God already knows you have those really ugly, inappropriate emotions. That's the beautiful thing about the Psalms. They teach us how to pray real anger, real hatred, Pray through our grudges and tell God what we really think about these people. It's a good thing to do to come before God and say, I just can't stand these people. But that's not what Jonah actually ends up saying in his prayer. What Jonah actually ends up saying in his prayer is, I just can't stand the grace of God. I just can't stand your love and your mercy and all of this forgiveness and compassion. Ugh, you're the worst kind of God that there is. That's the prayer of Jonah, and that's crazy and small. And the more you look at him, the more you pay attention to what this guy really looks like, you realize that he is the one that should really get judgment in the story, that the people of Nineveh, these horrible, terrible human beings, start to look like the good guys because of how crazy Jonah looks. He becomes like the very thing he hates because his God is so small. And so the roles kind of reverse, and you begin to wonder if Jonah's going to make it to the end of the book of Jonah 
what exactly is going to happen. There's a short story written by a woman named Flannery O'Connor. Don't read Flannery O'Connor unless you want to be convicted that you need the mercy of God. It's just, she's very good at getting you. Uh, but the, the story is called Revelation, and it's about a woman named Mrs. Turpin uh, who looks like exactly the kind of person you'd want to sit next to in a doctor's office. Uh, just, you know, nice and polite and well put together. And she's in a doctor's waiting room, and there are all sorts of other people in the room, you know, the kind of the weird people and the sort of dirty people that you try to sit a little bit further away from, near the magazines, whatever. And so she's chatting with somebody who, who kind of looks like her, and it all seems very nice and, and kind of polite. But the author keeps giving you a window into her head and into her heart. And you start to realize that even some of the nice things that she says sound really backhanded and really racist and really classist and really ugly and really terrible. And you start to really get a sense of who this woman is because you're not just seeing the version of herself she presents, but who she actually is on the inside. And the more the conversation goes on, the more you really start to dislike, to hate this woman. And there's an 18-year-old girl in the room who seems to see her for who she is from the beginning. And Mrs. Turpin, of course, has already judged her because she has acne on her face and she just doesn't like her. And this 18-year-old girl is reading a book on human development, and she's just, every time Mrs. Turpin in the conversation glances over at her, the girl looks angrier. It's like she can see right through her. And at one point, she looks over, and she's like, girl, you don't even know me. You seem to hate me. And she goes back to the conversation. And she starts talking about how her pigs don't smell. Her pigs are actually clean pigs. Her pigs are the, the amazing. They, they barely even touch the ground, her pigs. And uh, at one point in the course of the conversation, she starts talking about her faith in Jesus and how she's just so grateful that her life is the way that it is. And it doesn't look like somebody else's life. She's just so grateful for everything that she has. But because you've seen kind of what she's thinking and how she's feeling, you realize she's saying, I'm just so grateful that I'm not like everybody else in this room. I'm just so grateful that I'm, I'm better than everybody else that I know. I'm just so grateful that I'm such a superior, incredible person. And that's about the moment when she's talking about Jesus in kind of this self-righteous, pious mode, that all of a sudden a book just hits her right above the left eye. The 18-year-old girl has just unleashed it. And it's startling as you're reading it. You're just surprised. And Mrs. Turpin is extremely surprised. And all of a sudden the girl is on top of her just trying to choke her. And this 18-year-old girl who just sees her for who she is, she says, go back to hell, you old warthog. Just shocking for this, you know, well-mannered, nice, put-together woman who just doesn't understand what's happening. And, of course, they drag the girl off of her and she sort of straightens herself up and goes on home. But she can't help shaking the feeling that this might have been a message from God, that maybe God was trying to talk to her through this, you know, crazy 18-year-old girl. And so she keeps talking to God kind of out loud. She's actually cleaning her pigs at home because they do get dirty. And she's cleaning her pigs, and she's thinking, I'm, not, I'm nothing like these. I, I'm saved by Jesus. What, like I deserve to go to hell? Like what? Who do you think you are sending me a message like that? And all of a sudden, the sky opens, and she has this vision of an escalator. And on the escalator, there are people like her going up to heaven. They're well put together. They look really nice. But in front of them are a bunch of people that clearly make them uncomfortable, and definitely the kind of people that she doesn't think belong in heaven. Uh, black folks, and white trash folks, and poor folks, and uh, freaks and lunatics, and all sorts of people that just don't belong, that wouldn't ever be welcome in, in her church, actually. And the story kind of ends with her in the dark thinking about the song that they were singing, and the fact that only the people who looked like her were on key, but everybody was singing. And suddenly she's just hearing crickets around her and wondering if that's even a place she'd like to go, and wondering whether or not that's that's the place for, just, 
and the story is just over. And you're left wondering what will happen to Mrs. Turpin, who looks exactly like the people that she doesn't like. In fact, looks worse than the people that she doesn't like. Jonah is here talking about how he hates the mercy of God. And yet he's the recipient of the mercy of God, right? If we've been paying attention to the story, the only way he makes it into the whale and then back out of the whale is the grace of God. He's actually sitting in the shade of a plant God grew just to give him a little break from the heat because that's how nice God is. Even as this crazy man is waiting, hoping a city will burn, God thinks, well, you, you know, hopefully you won't get too dehydrated. And you think about the words that Jonah says, right? I knew that you're a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, just ready to relent from punishment. And those words actually are true about God, no matter how angry Jonah is about them. They're famous words. You hear them all over the place in the Old Testament. They're in the Psalms. They're in the prophets. They're all over the place. The first time they pop up is in Exodus 34. There's this moment where Moses is now dealing with God, and God has just delivered everybody out of Egypt. By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, there have been miracles. It's been amazing. The people saw God move. And God's on a mountain, and the mountain's on fire, and Moses goes up into the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, the people are down below going, man, it is really scary having an actual, like a real God. Um, it would be great if we could have like a more pocket-sized God. Like something, something smaller would be nice. And they go to the guy who's supposed to be the priest and they give him all their earrings. And they're like, could you make us something like, like a cow? I don't know, something. And so he makes a little cow out of gold and they all bow down to the cow. Like this feels much better. This guy's not going to tell us what to do or, you know, freak us out or anything. And God, meanwhile, is on top of the mountain making a covenant with Moses. And he's like, I got to interrupt this. Um, just so you know, th those people are down there right now. They've already made a fake God. And Moses is like, you're kidding. <laughs> Please don't kill them. Please don't kill me. And God goes, I'm not, that's not who I am. I'm not going to do that. Um, but go back down the mountain uh, with these Ten Commandments. And Moses goes down the mountain and he, he starts singing the song to the people of Israel. He goes, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, by no means clearing the guilty. But just, wow, look at the grace of God. Jonah is only in this story. The people of Israel only exist because God was gracious at the very beginning. When they had no reason to be forgiven, God forgave these people. Because that's just who God is. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. He's amazing. These words, uh, that God is gracious, uh, the Hebrew word there just means that God is disposed to be favorable. That he's just ready always to be generous. That he's just, his, his wallet is open. His pockets are ready. He's just, what can I give you? How can I give you a gift? Now, that he's merciful, that God's arms are always wide open, that there is nothing you can do that would make God say, I'm not interested in forgiving you. God is always, always, always ready to forgive you again and again and again and again. God is merciful. So long as you turn from the world you've been in into God's arms, he is ready to bring you back into his arms. God is slow to anger obvious in the book of Jonah. If I were the God of Jonah, he's just gone. Flick that little guy off the face of the earth. You know, when he jumps into the water, let him drown. Why save him? Why? Why, why keep giving him chances? But God is slow to anger, glacially patient with us. No matter how many times we don't seem interested in the mercy of God, he goes, I'm going to give him like 10 more minutes. Another five minutes. Just 
give him another chance. That Luke Parker, there's, give him a little bit more time. He'll figure it out. That he abounds in steadfast love. That he is just so full of love and mercy that you could never imagine just how far the love of God would go. And the God says this, and well, that Moses says this about God in Exodus, that we hear this from admittedly a kind of angry, prickly, petty prophet uh, in Jonah. But we see that really in Jesus Christ most clearly. Uh, God in the flesh. Just how, how far the love of God goes. And that God is always looking for an out. He's ready to relent from punishing. It's the same word that pops up in, in chapter 3, verse 10. That God is just ready to let people off the hook. He's looking for an opportunity to forgive us. Anything we do, the tiniest bit of repentance, God is ready to set us free from everything we've done wrong. That Jonah, despite believing in this very small God, seems to be talking about a very big God with great mercy and grace. And if only Jonah would turn to that God, if only Jonah would realize what he's being given, that he sits under the shadow of the grace of God the way you and I sit under the shadow of the cross... If only Jonah would realize that he might become big the way that his God is big. The bigger our God is, the, the, the more we become like him. The more we start to see just how vast God is. We turn from these little models and these little human-made versions. We turn back to the, the story of Scripture and, and what it says about who God is. We start to realize just how incredible this God is that we serve. That's why we have to keep coming back to the Bible again and again and again. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book on the story of Jonah, uh, says this. Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad people, for instance, the Ninevites, and blesses the good people, for instance, Jonah. When the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, Jonah is thrown into fury or despair. Jonah finds the real God to be an enigma because he cannot reconcile the mercy of God with his justice. How, Jonah asks, can God be merciful and forgiving to people who have done such violence and evil? How can God be both merciful and just? Jonah wants this smaller version, and the problem is that he keeps being confronted with the actual God that he serves. And most of us, I think, want the God that Jonah wants, a God who is absolutely merciful to me, that would do anything I want him to do, that would forgive the people I want him to forgive in the ways that I want him to forgive, but then would punish all the people I really don't like. I'm the one who gets to decide. That God sounds great. That's the God that Jonah wants, and that's the God that I want. And every now and again, you catch a glimpse of the real God and how far his mercy goes and who he's willing to forgive and, and what it really looks like. All these people in Nineveh. And this week, we did catch a glimpse of it. Uh, Clint mentioned it, and, and Jonah was pray, or Jordan was praying about it for a little bit. Um, this remarkable story uh, about a, a guy named Botham Jean, uh, or Jean, um, who was uh, gunned down in his apartment over a year ago. I was kind of following this trial um, all year. And if you didn't follow it, that's okay. But basically, he was sitting in his apartment, and somebody broke in and shot him. And the person who broke in and shot him was a cop. And the cop was white, and he was black. And the cop was off duty and believed she was going into her own apartment and thought she was shooting an intruder, even though he didn't have a weapon. It's pretty bad. And over the last year, sure enough, um, white cop shoots black guy who was in his own house. Um, didn't really play very well. And as you would imagine, there was a lot of issues as far as the Black Lives Matter movement and people who care about police and who want to talk about justice and who want to talk about, you know, the, the fact that many police officers are good and trying to do what they can. It's a complicated issue and it's a complicated thing in our country and I won't begin to try and explain it. 
Um, but there was a lot of corruption. Um, that, that seemed clear. Uh, the police officers did what they could to give prefer preferential treatment. Body cameras got turned off. There's talk of crime scenes being contaminated. Uh, and a couple of days ago, the officer was sentenced. And there was this crazy moment where the, the mother of the boy is standing up and saying, I'm going to leave Dallas, but after this, you all have to live here. And I'll tell you, what I've seen in our police force does not look good to me. And you need to figure out what's going on. It's, yes, it was unjust, unjust that my son was shot in his home, but it was, it's much worse what's happened as the system tried to kind of cover that up. Uh, but during the trial, there was an opportunity for family members to make a statement, uh, to just sort of talk about an impact statement. And uh, the younger brother of the man who'd been shot, who, by the way, was a worship leader in his church, um, got up. He's 18 years old. And he started talking about how, you know, I just, I'm not speaking for my family. I'm not speaking for anybody else. I'm just speaking for me. I hope you know Jesus. I hope you get to know Jesus. I hope that, that you change your life. And... And I can forgive you if you really are sorry for what you're doing. I, I don't want the worst for you. I don't want you to rot and die, which a lot of people have been saying. Because I don't think that's what my brother would want, and I don't think that's what Jesus would want. And uh, this, would you mind playing it? This is a little bit um, of his really powerful statement. I just think it's worth listening to. Hmm. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Now, that's an incredible thing, an incredible thing. That is only possible because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, only. I, I read all sorts of people who had all sorts of opinions about this this week. There were folks who talked about how this was naive, how this just doesn't understand the problem. And, you know, he can forgive whoever he wants, but that's not really how this works. And this is, you know, a systemic issue. And, and I kept thinking, yeah, that, this is naive idealism. This is stupid unless you believe in a really big God. If you believe in a really big God who died for you on the cross, if you believe that you are sitting in the shade of the grace of God, then this makes sense. That at some level he believes that his brother will rise from the dead. He believes that he will rise from the dead. There will be a day when he and this police officer stand before God and the, foot is, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And he seems to really understand the God that his brother believes, and he seems to really understand the God that Jonah talks about, but doesn't seem to get anywhere close to really getting his character and his heart and his compassion. The gospel that Jesus Christ talks about, 
most of the time in the church, we, we have this problem. We tend to reduce it to this little thing. We, you know, if only you get the right answers, and if you could talk theologically about the right things, and if you could become a little bit more moral, and a little bit, if you could become a better person. And the God we actually read about in the Bible is doing something else, something much bigger. He's inviting us into something much bigger, something greater than you or me, something bigger than you could ever imagine. Oh, the never-ending overwhelming, reckless love of God. Jonah is talking about a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishment. But he is nothing like him because he's trying to shrink that God down into something small. And when you look at this kid, Brant John, hugging the person who shot his brother, and saying, I don't want anything bad for you. I want what Jesus wants for you. I want what my brother wants for you. I hope you come to know Jesus. We see somebody who really understands the God that we talk about. Somebody who actually is waving his arms and saying, look, come follow the God that I followed. And it's so countercultural. It doesn't look any, it's so counterintuitive. It's, it's counter to what human instinct tells us to want, which is vengeance. And when I look at that black kid, i got to tell you, I see Jesus. Because I can tell you this, Jesus absolutely looks at you and me and goes, you have hurt me. I think you've begun to understand what you have done to me, and I just want you to know I want the best for you. I don't want anything bad for you. I just want the best for you. Can I give, can I just, can I give you a hug? Can I bring you into the mercy and grace of God? Friends, we don't want the small God that Jonah talks about. We want the big God that is pursuing Jonah, that is trying to save him in spite of himself. Would you pray with me?